God is good. God is good all the time. God is good all the time, even, even when there's shooters in Dallas, even when trucks mow people down in France, even when there's military coups and you can't make sense of your world. God is good all the time. He never stops being good, even though it seems incredibly obscured at times. We wouldn't be human if we wouldn't admit that. It's like, God, I can't make sense of this. How does everything seem to be spiraling out of control? God is good. God is good all the time. He never stops being God, therefore he never stops being good just because we can't always see it. It's the benefit of going through the book of Romans. If you're new here to New Hope, we've been working through this for about six weeks, and um, we made it to verse 18. Um, last week, we've, we got partway into 17, and we're going to pick up there and go into verse 18 shortly, but we need to spend some time on understanding why Paul says what he does in verse 18. When he begins talking about the wrath of God, uh, he in verse 17, has just explained how righteous people live in faith. And it feels like a really hard shift when he begins talking about the wrath of God in verse 18. And you're left wondering, how do I make sense of this? That's why I want to spend time with you today in the book of Romans. And go with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. That's where I'm going to open my Bible. Romans chapter 1 and, and verse 17 and 16 and 18. I'm going to pray with you before we go into the text, but here's how you can pray in the quietness of your own heart while I'm praying for us as a, a group of people gathered today, that God would translate these things that we're about to study into a reality in our life that we actually do something with the things that we're learning. And we allow God not only to be present here, not only to teach us, but to translate it into activity. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I pray for all the men and the women, all the students, all the children who are gathered here, those who are watching online right now. Pray for every single one of us as we step into this time of trying to understand your word and make sense of what's going on in our world and how at times it feels like things are not in control even though you say you have everything under control. So we've just invited your Holy Spirit, Father, to be present here, to flood this place with your atmosphere. God, that you would overwhelm us with your presence. And as we examine your word and allow you to speak to us that our lives would be changed as a result of it, God, that we would be able to speak into the lives of other people whom we know, that you would use us for your kingdom. My heart's desire, Father, and we pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's go back to verse 16 where we were at last week, and we'll move forward through that. Verse 16, you'll see it on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. 
but the righteous man shall live by faith. But the righteous shall live by faith. What's he saying there? Well, he, he's quoting. He's quoting the Old Testament. Specifically, if you want to look it up yourself, he's quoting the book of Habakkuk. If you want to change your password someday, use Habakkuk for your password. That'd be a good one. Nobody's going to crack that one. You'd be amazed at the spelling of it. Habakkuk chapter 2. There's a group of people who are abandoning God in the Old Testament. And then the prophet Habakkuk begins talking to God about the issue that they're abandoning God, and God speaks back. Yep, we got this generation of people who are abandoning me, but the righteous will live in their faith. The righteous will live by faith. What's he conveying here? Well, there's continuity in your faith. It's not a one-time thing. You don't get your ticket punched and then check out and say, yep, I'm good for eternity. I don't have to do anything else. There's a continuity in your faith. It's your way of life. Theologians call it the perseverance of the saints. Let me give you an example of that from Scripture. Look on the screen with me at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. He, meaning Jesus, has now reconciled you in His fleshly blood through death in order to present you before Him, meaning God, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Check this. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So according to the Bible, according to my Bible, according to the Bible you hold in your hands this morning, a true believer, someone who's made righteous, is going to continue in the faith. So Paul's saying, Romans 1.17, by the time he's declared, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And you can evidence it in people's life because the righteous, verse 17, the righteous shall live in their faith. They'll live by their faith. So what is that? And how do we understand it? And I will tell you, church, it is especially crucial as we approach verse 18 and Paul expands on the wrath of God. How does faith relate to wrath? And why mix righteous people living in faith with this abrupt statement about the wrath of God? Know this about the book of Romans, and it's true of all the books in the Bible. It is not a series of disconnected statements Rather, each one works in tandem with the other, leading to one brilliant chain of interconnected thoughts. And so what seems like a hard shift into something that is obscure about the wrath of God is actually the logical outcome of people who are living in faith. Uh, the definition of faith is actually found in the book of Hebrews. And if you are in the book of Romans, I'm going to ask you to also flip over to the book of Hebrews today. And you can watch it on screen if you don't have a Bible or there's Bibles in the rack around you or if you're keeping notes in your bulletin, just write down some of these verses. But look at this one, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith, here's God's definition of it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, last week, we talked about the fact that faith is built into us at birth. There, there's a component of faith that is very natural to humanity. We call it functional faith. And here's what it looks like. We buy food in the store or in restaurants believing that that food is not contaminated and it won't harm us. But we use common sense so we don't buy sushi at gas stations, right? Okay? Don't do that. 
I don't want to have to do your funeral someday because you got food poisoning. We, we use common sense, but we have faith, so we buy food believing it's not contaminated. We, we live in the United States of America. We have a monetary system. We accept paper money in exchange with each other, believing that our government will back it. We haven't yet fallen into the place where we're trading in roosters and chickens again. Okay, we believe there's a monetary system in place. We have faith in it. I have faith, and I'm sure you do. I have faith in the physicians who attend this church because they've studied medicine, and when I go to them for counsel or I have to submit to a surgeon's knife, I have faith in their training because I have no training in medicine. I have to have functional faith. Without basic faith, society cannot function. And that's not the kind of faith that Paul's talking about here. Talking about a faith that comes from God, a saving faith. And that's different than the functional faith that you're born with. This saving faith is a confidence in a different source. We looked at it last week and called it a supernatural faith because it doesn't come from us. Saving faith proceeds from God. Remember Ephesians 2.8? Let's remind yourself of this again. Look on the screen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a what church? It is the, the gift of God. So salvation is a gift from God. And your faith, you may have thought it was yours, but God says it's, it's a gift from me. Faith in Jesus as your Savior absolutely includes your decision if you've decided to follow Jesus. Faith is your decision, but God says it proceeds from me. I give it to you as a gift, the ability to believe. God gives the ability to believe and receive salvation. It is not something that we earn. If it was, we could boast about it, right? We can't boast. Scripture says this. Look with me on the screen. Romans 4, 2. If Abraham was justified by works, and Abraham was a righteous dude, right? He's a good guy. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The believing was credited as righteousness. In your notes this morning, you're going to see what you see on the screen, which are three stages to faith. You may think that you've been walking with Jesus a long time. you got this nailed down. I've got this, Mark. I understand it. Write these things down anyway or circle them in your Bible or in your notes this morning. Here's why. I guarantee you, you know somebody in your world, either in your office place or your work environment or in your neighborhood or in your family who doesn't know this and they need to understand it, and someday you might be able to help them understand it and make sense of it. Let's talk about faith for a minute. Three stages. There's this felt need stage, there's this content stage, and then there's the commitment stage. Here's the felt need stage. The, the felt need stage is like this. J just say amen if you agree with us. Whether or not it's recognized, there is a need for salvation. Okay? Whether or not it's recognized, there is a need for salvation. So a person has no reason to believe until they feel the need for it, until the need is felt. Let me explain that. Just think back to our study in the book of Acts. Paul is obliterating the church before he meets Jesus. He's violently opposed to Jesus. He's throwing people in jail left and right. He's overseeing the murder and the execution of Christians violently opposed to the things of the church. 
He feels no need for salvation or to have a relationship with Jesus, even though the need is real. And you're looking at Paul's life like, Paul, what is up with you? And you're just like off the charts with your violence. He feels no need for it until God intercepts. And then his need became felt. Felt need does not require theological depth, only a sincere heart. Felt need does not require theological depth, only a sincere heart. Now, felt need is essential, but it's incomplete to stop there. That's stage one. Let's go to stage two. Now, stage two is what we would call the, the content stage or the substance stage. And a person at that place doesn't really have to fully grasp the doctrine of salvation before being saved, but they do need the gospel truth. They do need to know that we're sinners who are lost and in need of Jesus. Here's a real-world example of that. Lee Strobel is one of my f more favorite modern-day authors, and Lee authored quite a few books. One, uh, two that come to mind are The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. Uh, odd names, but here's the background on it. Lee uh, was a graduate of Harvard Law School and worked for the Chicago Sun-Times as a legal editor. An avowed atheist, took his legal degrees with him, went to Chicago, made himself a fortune, and was working as the legal editor. And he married an atheist, his wife, and he were living a good life in the suburbs of Chicago. And then Lee's wife was introduced to Jesus and became a fully committed Christ follower. And it ticked Lee off. He was not a happy guy because he wanted to go to the cottage on the weekends. He wanted the party life, and she wanted to go to church. Now, what is up with that? So he decided to use all of his legal resources, his investigative background, working as a journalist for the Chicago Sun-Times, and decided to try and take down Christianity for, by building a case against Christ. He got about three months into his research, and hit the wall and said, oh crap, this is real. Everything that he discovered confirmed what his wife had been telling him. And he came to the conclusion, not only is this real, I have to do something with this information. And what was going to be the case against Christ became the case for Christ, and he authored a worldwide bestseller. Lee's condition was earmarked in the book, The Case for Christ, because of the truth and the evidences he found for Jesus. But that's just the substance stage. That's just the content stage. If he stopped there, it would be incomplete because a lot of people have a felt need stage and a lot of people have information about the historical Jesus. But they stop short of the third stage and the third stage is the commitment stage. The commitment stage is absolutely the climax of faith. And without that commitment, it is not saving faith. Because again, many people believe in the historical Jesus. Many people feel a need to be forgiven of their sins, but they don't do anything with it. True believers fully commit to Jesus, and that's when faith becomes saving faith. Now, in our world, the idea of blind faith sounds super spiritual, right? But it's not biblical. God does not require faith without giving reason for faith. 
This is especially important as we begin talking about the wrath of God. Just let that keep swimming around in your mind up there. Some of you are just thinking through questions right now. Catch this description again. Go with me back on the screen. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I want to show you the King James Version of that. You're looking at it on the screen. NASB, New American Standard Version. King James Version side by side. But the words read a little different. What's up with that? Look at the King James Version on the bottom. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In the English, the words are very different. But I assure you, in the Greek language, they are absolutely interchangeable. And right away, in both translations, you are seeing biblical faith is not blind optimism. It is not a manufacturing of a, I hope this is real. I'm I'm not hoping in hope. It's not believing in spite of the evidence. To the contrary, faith in the things of God is not superstition. Blind faith would be superstition. That's faith in spite of the evidence. God says, I want you to believe because of the evidence The two words that I want you to really focus on for just a moment are these these words that are interchanged by one word in the Greek language. The Greek word is hypostasis. In your Bible, it's the word assurance and the word substance. Now, faith is the assurance. Now, faith is the substance. They're both the same word. Hypostasis, something deeply established, like a concrete foundation, something deep under you. Now, catch this. Faith is the substructure which stands under the superstructure. Think of the Eiffel Tower in France. The Eiffel Tower is not strong because it's made of steel. It would blow over in violent winds were it not for the foundation underneath it. That's hypostasis, the rooting underneath. This building has been here a long time, since the 1970s. Yes, it's outgrowing our needs. We're quickly in need of a new facility. But this building has stood through many, many windstorms. Why? Because the foundation goes deep down in the ground. That's hypostasis, the assurance, the foundation of things hoped for, the substance of things hoped for, God says in His Word. So to a Christian, faith is what a concrete foundation is to the superstructure of a skyscraper. That doesn't sound like something that I'm just hoping and hoping. Faith, that's a gift from God, right, church? Faith is a gift from God. He says, this thing that I give to you is God's way of giving me substance, of giving me a structure that what he promises will be fulfilled. I have this substructure that when God says it, it's true. So This is just a quote from my notes. I just want to put it on the screen so you see it along with me. Look at this thought. True biblical faith is confident submission to God's Word in spite of the circumstances, not in spite of the evidence. So when shooters go free on a spree in Dallas and it looks like things are out of control or a man drives wildly with a truck or it looks like ISIS is taking over the world, is God still in control? Is, is God still on the throne? True biblical faith is confident submission to God's Word in spite of the circumstances because we interpret evidence and we see evidence 
and how we interpret it greatly affects our reaction. So the question is, do we see the whole or do we see the part? Look with me on the screen. Scripture says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, he's talking about in the future. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. The theological truth of the things that we've been talking about sound kind of complex, but I assure you, the working truth of it is very simple. Here's how it fleshes out. This is what we understand. God speaks, we hear His Word, we trust His Word, and we act on His Word. And here is where some Christians get derailed, the action part. I hear His Word, I trust His Word, I want to act on His Word. How does God speak? Well, He speaks through the Bible. He speaks through prayer. And He speaks through a, a biblically grounded, a biblically rooted church, church believers. God speaks. We hear His Word. We trust His Word. We act on His Word. But some people get derailed in the action. Now, if you've been here at New Hope for any length of time, You've heard me make this statement before. You're going to hear it a lot during the book of Romans, but you probably haven't heard it in six months. What I believe about God determines what I do next. I get a diagnosis of cancer. What I believe about God determines how I respond to that. Find out that a loved one is killed in a car accident. What I believe about God determines what I do with that. What I believe about God determines what I do next. So, faith. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. Faith is my response. It's an action. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. No matter the circumstances, hear this, students especially, you're dealing with this in school, no matter the circumstances, no matter the consequences, what you believe about God determines what you do. Our task is to submit to God's Word. That's our responsibility. Because we know that God works together for our... Right? Scripture backs that up. If you're not familiar with the verse, look on the screen. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Even when it doesn't look like it. Here's where our world fails. By that, I'm talking about people who have no relationship with God whatsoever. They don't understand Jesus and can't associate themselves with Him. Here's where the world fails. The inability to grasp that faith is only as good as the focus of its object. I can have faith in a fly on the wall. People have done it throughout history. People have bowed down to insects. People have bowed down to wooden idols, to stone idols. I could have faith in a fly in the wall until somebody comes along with a fly swatter and squashes it. See, faith is only as good as the object of its focus. The object of our focus is in the living God. Faith is only as good as the object of its focus. He is the object of our focus. Our faith is in Him. So the object of our faith is in the living God, and He is working for good, even when circumstances feel otherwise. Now let's put this together. 
Just go back with me to Hebrews 11.1 again before we move into this wrath component. We're not going to get too far into the wrath component today. We're going to touch on it, but put this together now. Now, faith is the substance, the substructure, Scripture says. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substructure of things hoped for. How do I understand that? Faith to believe that God can bring bring a promise in the midst of a trauma. Faith is the substructure of something hoped for. Put that together with the Genesis story. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are living in paradise. Everything is perfect. There is no illness, there is no sickness, and the tempter comes. And when the tempter comes, he comes very subtly, and they give in to the temptation, and darkness descends upon this planet, and it remains Because by one man, sin entered into the world. And God shows up on the scene, and he begins speaking to Adam and Eve. And we're told this in Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking. And I will put enmity between you, speaking there to the tempter, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he, that's Jesus, this is God bringing promise in the midst of trauma. Can't be more traumatic than the entire world falling. This is huge trauma, megas trauma. And he will bruise you, crush you, Scripture says. He will crush your head. God speaking to Satan, the one coming, the Messiah, when he comes, he will crush you. And you will bruise him on the heel. What does that mean? He's talking about the crucifixion. Talking about the the death of Jesus dying for us. Where is that? Way back in Genesis chapter 3. God in the midst of trauma bringing hope. Faith is the substance, the substructure of things hoped for. God does these kind of promises throughout the Old Testament. Here's an example of another one. Isaiah 53.5. 800 years before Jesus is born, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, speaking of Jesus, and by His scourging we are healed. Just one of hundreds of prophecies of Jesus being whipped and beat. Before crucifixion was ever even invented, people talking about what was going to happen when the Messiah come. Here's what you need to catch. The faithful, capital F, the faithful anticipated these promises. They didn't have the specifics. They didn't have all the details that you have today. You have a complete Bible. You can look back over the span of history and see all the details. They didn't have it. They didn't have the specifics, but they knew this. They knew it was God's Word. They knew that it was God communicating it, and so they lived by faith. In the midst of those promises, they lived in their faith. So faith is this thing that is yet unseen, but it gives us present assurance. So your faith is a certainty of things other people consider absolute hogwash. Faith is the substance of things other people consider to be absolute impossibility. Why do we do that? We, we do so because faith is based in structure that is absolutely unshakable, and it's a gift from God. Here's a struggle for natural man. 
Natural man, I'm talking about people who don't have a relationship with God, they trust in the physical. They put their faith in things that you can see. But the one who belongs to God, according to God's own word, is specially blessed. Did you know that? Did you know you're blessed this morning? I want you to see Jesus' own words. Look with me on the screen. John 20, 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Who's he talking about, church? You can say me. He's talking about you. Turn to somebody and tell them you're blessed. Hey, you did it. Great. Some of you just said it to yourself. I'm, I'm blessed. Some of you just said it inside your head. I'm thinking I'm blessed. You are. God says you are blessed because you believe in something you haven't even seen. None of us here have physically seen Jesus. Jesus is talking about people in a future time who he says they're blessed. I know there's people who will believe even though they don't see me. Let's finish out chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 1, before we move into this, this wrath thing. It's coming. Here's the last part of the statement. The evidence of things not seen. I told you there's words that are interchangeable. Evidence is also interchangeable with the word conviction. The conviction of things not seen. In the, in the Greek language, it, it means proof test. The proof test. Here's the implication of that. The implication is there's a response. There's an outward display of the internal substance. Meaning, if you've got this faith structure in you, and it's rooted deep, and you believe the things of God, Scripture is saying there's going to be evidence for that. There's evidence for the things not seen. It's going to come out in your life. Here's how it works. A person of faith lives in their belief, meaning we commit to the things that we know are true. Let's use Noah for an example. Noah lived in a time when there was no rain on the earth. The hydrological cycle of the planet was different than it is today. Go back and check me out on Scripture on that. Genesis chapter 6, God says there was no rain. It didn't exist. God watered the land by an underground sprinkling system. The entire planet was wired to be watered through evaporative moisture and dew, like a greenhouse effect. Okay? Genesis chapter 6, check it. So God shows up to Noah and He says, Noah, you've got to get prepared because there's going to be a rain coming. Noah's logical response would be, what's rain? Right? So he heard God's Word, he trusted God's Word, and he acts on God's Word. Why? Because of the substructure of faith in him that believes God's Word is true. So he prepares for disaster. So follow the flow of this. God speaks. We hear His Word, we trust His Word, and we act on His Word. The outward building of the ark in your life, the outward building of the ark is merely the indicator of the internal belief. What I believe about God determines what I do next. Do I believe God's Word or not? So God backs it up by saying this in Hebrews 10.38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. When it comes to the issue of faith, modern man finds himself with an incredible dilemma, especially in, in 2016. It's a willing dilemma. We have walked into it. 
For the past 200 years, there has been a deliberate, very sophisticated, systematic approach to undercut the truth of the supernatural. Prior to the 1800s, you will not find individuals questioning the Bible and God's Word to the degree they began questioning it in the 1800s. The 1800s are known as the Age of Enlightenment for a reason. During the 1800s, things began to pop on the scene. Individuals came up with theories. Charles Darwin arrives on the scene with the theory of the evolution of the species. Many of the cults that flourish in the world today arrived on the scene in the 1800s. For the last 200 years, there has been a systematic approach to undercut the truth of the supernatural, and the primary target has been the Bible. It has been the Word of God, reducing all reality to the realm of natural reasoning. So in 2016, we're left dealing with this, man's capacity to deal with what they can measure physically. If I can measure it, if I can put it in a test tube, if I can see it, you know what that does? It makes man the measuring rod of all things. It makes man the measuring rod of all truth instead of God's Word. So human reasoning says this, if science says it, I will believe it. I want you to believe this, church, because I believe it. I, I hope you do. This is the exact same tactic that Satan used in the garden when tempting Adam and Eve. And it sounds just like this. Did God really say? And he left it hang there. They had already heard the Word of God declared. God said, don't do this. Satan came to them and said, did God really say? What did he just do? He made man the measuring rod. Every time Jesus was tempted by Satan, his response was, the Word of God says, the Word of God says, the Word of God says. Satan tested Adam and Eve in an area where he knew they would be vulnerable. Did God really say? And man became the measuring rod instead of God's Word. So everything outside the sphere of man's natural physical experience and everything outside the sphere of intellectual understanding is dismissed. And when God is ruled out, man loses the measure of himself. He loses the measure of his world and cannot find purpose in his existence. And it leaves your neighbors and your family members with a God-sized hole in their heart because they can't make sense of this. What's going on in France? Why are people shooting people in Turkey? Why are they killing each other in Dallas? I can't make sense of this. And humanity is left with this massive hole and a craving to try and make sense of it. You want to try and make sense of the disasters going on in this world? Don't miss next week. Don't miss why we look at Romans 1.18 and the wrath of God. You'll be able to speak into anybody's life as you leave here this next week. Only God who made man can ever satisfy man. Do you believe that? Only God who made man can ever satisfy man. Get your amen ready. Only the God who made reason can make life reasonable. 
right? That's our God. Only that God. So let's transition just for a moment over to this wrath thing. The Bible promises. The Bible is God's Word, right, church? So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. God's Word. God's Word promises. There are things the mind of man cannot fathom. No matter how brilliant, no matter how high we score on tests, there are things we cannot fathom according to God's Word. There are realities for which we have no material evidence it does not make it less real because of that. So hear this. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. And He's revealed some things in His Word. To those of us who are living in faith, we believe that God's working out His purposes. But verse 17 of Romans 1 says, The righteous shall live in their faith, shall live by their faith. I've already told you that Romans is not this series of disconnected statements. Rather, each one is working in tandem with the other. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How do we understand this deliberate link that Paul is making here? Notice first of all, the very unmistakable declaration that there is a righteous wrath that belongs to God. You see that right off the top? God has a righteous wrath. It's real. It is a known truth. Now here's a teaser for next week. Do you notice he's not talking about future tense? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, not will be revealed. There is a day of wrath coming. That's when Scripture talks about the skies melting and the firmament and the earth cracking up. There is a day of wrath coming, but he says the wrath of God is revealed. Why does he say it that way? I want you to pray about that this week. Pray that God will give you clarity because it will alter your life. We're talking about worldview understanding. We just sang, you're, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. We're all over that, right? I mean, we'll raise our hands and Michael sits at the piano and says, have you experienced God and his goodness in the midst of trauma? And we all across the auditorium put our hands up saying, yeah, absolutely. Because we're all over that, God. You are a good, good father. But that makes it doubly hard and complicated when, when we see things like he's got wrath. It goes against all our hopes. It goes against the imagination of humanity. It even becomes a stumbling block to Christians because many people misunderstand the wrath of God. It is not a temperamental loss of emotion and an outburst of anger. It's not like a teenager throwing a temper tantrum. Sorry, teenagers, to use you as an example. Even adults have temper tantrums, right? But we just hide it a little bit better. God does not have temper tantrums. We're told it's a righteous wrath. God's attributes are perfectly balanced, balanced in perfection. I want you to say amen if you agree with this statement. 
God is love. Okay? If God is not 100% love, if he is not perfectly balanced, 100% complete in love, he would not be God. If he is not completely 100% righteous wrath, he would not be God. Some of you, that's the first time you've ever heard that. Scripture affirms God hates with a perfect hatred. He loves with a perfect love. I have loved you with an everlasting love, his word says. But there are things that he hates, and when he hates, he hates perfectly. So scripture says it's a righteous wrath. My experience is, and I'm associated with a lot of churches, some that have as many as 60,000 in them, and some that have as few as 20 in them. My experience is this. In 2016, churches really like talking about abundant life in Christ. Really love talking about the joy of salvation and the peace that Jesus brings in that. He separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. Amen, church? And we're all over that. We love that. We want to hear more of that. And those are results of true faith in Jesus. But they are not the whole we don't see the complete picture. I am absolutely convinced, I know Paul is, or he would not have written the way that he did. He is absolutely convinced a person, a human, cannot appreciate the wonder of God's grace until they know about the perfect demands of a holy God and what it means to stand in the presence of a holy God. We cannot appreciate the fullness of God's love until we know about the fierceness of God's anger. So we can't appreciate how good, good, God, you're good. We can't appreciate how good he really is until we know how desperately lost humanity is. So Paul begins writing in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And he ends in Romans 3, 9. Some of you are doing the math real quickly and you're thinking, it, it took us six weeks to get to verse 17. We're going to be like a year in God's condemnation and wrath? That would not be a bad thing, by the way. No, we, we will not. You can't have a proper diagnosis without examining the illness, right? can't really understand the depth of depravity until we read what God says about it. God is determined, church, that we understand the reality of being under wrath before showing us the way of escape in Jesus Christ. God is determined to show us what it is to be under wrath before showing us salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul just gave the introduction, I told you, in verses 1 through 16. What we just looked at today is just the introduction to understanding by faith that when God says it, you better believe it because it's real and it's true and it plays out in your world all around you. How do you understand it? That's how I'm going to pray for us right now.
because we're approaching a week, and I'm going to ask you to be in prayer this week. Invite your friends back. We're trying to make sense of why these things happen the way they happen in this world. If you're coming to next week's services, be praying in advance for people that they grasp the reality of what it means to be under the wrath of God. I asked you to do that. Just before we pray, I asked you to do that last week. I asked you to be praying for people that they would understand what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you this morning that happened this past week. People came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the discussions that we had about God's Word. So thank you for praying. I hope for you to be able to meet an individual who came to faith in Christ in the last two weeks who three weeks ago would have said she was absolutely agnostically opposed to God and believing that he didn't exist, but today considers herself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's worth saying amen over, isn't it? Yeah, it is. God's Word is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It can do things. So pray for that. Let's pray together. God, I know that your word will meet us at the point of our need. And where we fall short is in believing that you mean things for good. You intend them for good, even when it looks to us like it's going badly. Father, I pray for an individual right now whom I don't even know, but you just laid it on my heart. I believe there's a person right here this morning who's struggling to believe that this is true and really wrestling with just how good you really are because they haven't seen it in their life. not trying to be a prophet, God. I just feel that you laid that on my heart. I want you to be, God, I pray for you. I'm asking that you'd be especially close to that person. For all of us, Father, who are gathered in this room, who are feeling the weight of this reality, that we know there's a rescue. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We deal with the reality of the world that we live in, and people are violently opposed to the things that we stand for. God, cause us to be compassionate, but bold enough to speak the truth in love. Your wrath is real. And there are consequences for living opposed to you. Father, I I pray, I plead with you that we would be a people who are boldly willing to proclaim the reality of what we know to be true, that there is salvation in Jesus Christ and your wrath can be escaped. God, I pray for that to be true among us our church this week, that we would be a people who will boldly proclaim to the people of the Metro Lansing area, the people who are listening online, that they would proclaim to the people in their community that we believe you and that we take you at your word regardless of what man says. We trust you and we will live in our faith empower us that way, Lord God. I pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. And God's people said, amen. Have a good week.